Hello. Welcome to Don't Just Read the Abstract. I'm Pip Nicholson. And I'm Richard Booker. This is a brand new podcast discussing recent advances in non-malignant hematology. Each episode, we'll do a deep dive on a potentially practice-changing trial, critically appraise the study, and discuss with subject experts and interview the study authors. The purpose is to fill a much-needed gap in training around non-malignant hematology and critical appraisal. This podcast is associated with HemeStar, the UK's non-malignant hematology training and research network. The podcast is sponsored by Sobe as a hands-off educational grant, and Sobe have no editorial input whatsoever. Pip and I do have some declarations of interest, but none that are relevant to this episode. And for that information about who pays the two of us, head over to whopaysthisdoctor.org and search for us by name. On this, the first ever episode, we will be discussing the PACER trial, platelet transfusion before CVC placement in patients with thrombocytopenia. We are delighted that we'll be joined by study lead author, Dr. Floor Van Baal from Amsterdam, as well as Professor Simon Stanworth, Professor of Transfusion Medicine in Oxford, who will help us put the trial's findings into context. This podcast is intended for a medical audience and should not be taken as medical advice. It is for educational and entertainment value only. If you do need medical advice, please talk to your own doctor. So before we get into the nitty gritty of the study we are going to discuss, we thought we'd just do this very quick feature, which I'm going to call the trial roundup. Um, It doesn't quite work because they're not all trials um, and it's not a complete roundup, but I guess you get the picture. Um, And the first study um, you're going to talk about is called Explorer 7. Yeah, uh, I wanted to discuss the um, Explorer 7 study published in the New England Journal of Medicine by Matsushita et al. uh, recently. So this is a trial of a monoclonal antibody against tissue factor pathway inhibitor or TFPI called conkizumab, a so-called rebalancing uh, therapy. Um, and what this boils down to is in patients with haemophilia A or B with inhibitors, so a, a really difficult to treat patient group who bleed a lot, uh, randomizing them to nothing, that was 19 patients, or to receive conkizumab prophylaxis, that was 33 patients. And what this study showed really was a very impressive biological activity of that conkizumab. There was a slight concern over some arterial and venous thrombotic events in three patients. And uh, the study actually had to be paused temporarily to to allow for this to be investigated. Uh, What they did about this eventually was to reduce the the dose of the conkizumab. And then there were no more safety signals after that. Um, So exciting that this drug clearly has biological activity. Um, What yet remains to be seen is how it fits in with other treatment options like emicizumab, but yeah, really exciting for the field. Yeah, good stuff. Um, another study that I found really interesting and I think we're going to cover on our next podcast is Frail AF. Um, so this was a, a Dutch study where they randomized elderly frail patients with polypharmacy to either stay on a vitamin K antagonist or switch to a DOAC for prevention of stroke in atrial fibrillation. They managed to randomize um, 1,330 patients um, to either staying on the VKA or switching to a DOAC um, with a primary outcome of uh, major or clinically relevant non-major bleeding and a secondary outcome of thrombosis. Um, Now, this was a superiority study, so they're expecting that switching would be better. But in actual fact, they found that the patients who remained on the VKA had a much lower risk of bleeding. So of 661 patients who continued on a VKA, only 62 had um, major or clinically relevant non-major bleeding, whereas in the DOAC group, 101 had um, bleeding. That was a statistically significant difference. The trial was stopped early um, and there was no difference in the risk of thromboembolic outcomes. So we're going to discuss this on the next podcast because I think it is a practice changing trial. I've had um, colleagues who are GPs text me about it asking what we should do. Um, So this is something that we definitely should be addressing. And we can do that with the study authors and with uh, Dr. David Sutton, who's a consultant in Stoke-on-Trent. I mean, my wife's a geriatrician and she loves trials that are done in the more elderly patient group that are so often excluded from uh, the, the sort of seminal trials. Um, I had a paper I wanted to share uh, about, um, it was also in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, by uh, Theodore Walkentin, and this is about um, adenovirus-induced VIT. And this, you know, you know my interest in VIT from, for the last two years, but this effectively shows that VIT is not just a, um, a, a vaccine-induced issue. Um, this is 
it's a case report of two patients who had adenovirus infection and then developed thrombocytopenia, low fibrinogen, high D-dimer and thromboses. Uh, one was a, was, was a child who, who had a, a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis and unfortunately died. And another was an adult who had uh, multiple strokes um, and they were treated in the same way that, that people with VIT were treated with, with plasma exchange. Um, so I think this is you know, a sign of, of a new disease. I think it's really interesting. So the last study I want to talk about is possibly the most interesting, although possibly the most uh, speculative. Um, this was a study I saw published in JAMA, um, where this, the team looked at over a million um, blood donation recipients and blood donors, um, and actually found that if the blood donor later in life had multiple intracerebral hemorrhages, the risk of having intracerebral hemorrhage in the recipient is much higher. It's really funny, really, because it suggests that there's a some kind of transmissible agent in the red cell transfusion that's then going into the, the recipient and perhaps years later causing, causing bleeding. Um, clearly, there's all the limitations and the biases of observational studies, but we're obviously going to go on to talk about the, the risks and the benefits of platelet transfusions in preventing bleeding. But every so often, this kind of black swan event, i.e. something you're just not expecting comes along and changes your, your perspective on medicine. And I think it's de definitely something to, to take into account when we, uh, when we think about how we use blood products in the future. And maybe flippantly, these trials that we do, say the trial that we're looking at today, should they have recorded where the, the platelet donations came from and what happened to the donors afterwards? I think we should probably... <laughs> Okay, that's it for the roundup. Next up, we're going to be getting into the nitty gritty of the PACER trial. So yeah, this is a New England Journal of Medicine paper published not all that long ago in May 2023. Uh, it's by um, Floor van Baal and a Dutch group. Um, and it's about platelet transfusion before central venous catheter placement in patients who have low platelet counts. Um, there is a degree of uncertainty as to what cut-off threshold you should use for platelet counts uh, before procedures in general and in sort of putting in central lines in particular. So this trial is to try and guide what to do in this situation. Uh, this trial randomised people who were on haematology wards or the intensive care unit with platelet counts between 10 and 50 who needed a central line insertion to either receive a platelet transfusion or not and then measure how many of them bled in the next 24 hours. So Pip, I don't really have a feel for how risky these things are i do remember one patient with aplastic anemia who went for a central line and had a, what what would be called a grade four bleed i mean she was that was catastrophic bleeding um i can't remember what a platelet count was but she obviously had a platelet count over 10 um so clearly the platelet count doesn't necessarily predict everything but yeah she, i mean she nearly died from it, it was incredible about 19 19 year old um woman um so these things aren't without risk but clearly anecdote is not data um so do, what do you know about the, the actual risk of bleeding with these things? Before I answer that, Rich, I think it's important to define what bleeding is and how it was measured in this study. So in this study, they use the WHO bleeding criteria, which grades bleeding from zero, no bleeding, to four, which is basically what you just described, uh, life-threatening bleeding that generates hemodynamic instability. And between that, you've got grade three bleeding, which is serious bleeding but without hemodynamic instability but does require a red cell transfusion or grade two which is bleeding that needs a minor intervention to stop it and last more than 20 minutes and then grade one which is very minor bleeding perfect um so going back to my earlier question then what's the risk of all those things with central line insertions well i think so we know, we know a lot from uh, retrospective studies, and there are some prospective studies, but there's no randomized studies. So there's a systematic review which looks at four and a half thousand uh, central line insertions in three and a half thousand thrombocytopenic patients to, with varying degrees of thrombocytopenia with varying thresholds for platelet transfusion. So it's, it's, they're a very heterogeneous group. But in those, bleeding um, was 5% as an average, and there was no mortality associated with the bleeding complications. Okay. So from that point of view, that's pretty safe. Yeah. I mean, do we care about grade two bleeding? 
grade three bleeding or do we just really care if it's bad? I mean, I, personally, I don't really see grade two bleeding as being particularly significant. Yeah. It takes the time of the person who needs to control the bleeding. But it's the, the issue is, I think, is whether it's a sort of a herald of um, worse bleeding, but in a smaller number of people. I guess we could, this is something we can ask the author for. Um, but I guess there's two reasons to go for grade two bleeding or grade two and above bleeding. One is you're interested in grade two bleeding as being bad for patients, which I guess any complication from 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 a procedure where they bleed can cause anxiety, it can cause potentially pain, I guess, if it's under the skin. Mm. And yeah, as you rightly said, it takes someone's time to sort of press on it. Um, but I would imagine 20 minutes of a healthcare assistant pressing one is cheaper than a platelet transfusion. Um, but the other reason you might want to look for grade two is that grade three, four are so rare as to whether grade two sort of predicts grade three and four. So if you can reduce grade two bleeding, do you reduce grade three and four bleeding, even though that's really rare? And that was my interpretation when looking at this study protocol was that they the study in order to get a reduction in three and grade three and four bleeding would have to be absolutely massive yeah, yeah. okay um let's talk about inclusion exclusion criteria so just simply i'll buzz through these so platelet counts between 10 and 50 the cvc had to be in place for 24 hours um although interesting that's not a inclusion criterion that can be defined before enrollment so i don't know how that works any thoughts on that I mean, does that mean that it excludes people where you put the central line in and it didn't work properly, so it was badly placed, so you took it out? Again? Yeah. So I wonder if they were including the intention to treat analysis, but I'm not sure. I, I can't find that anywhere in the study. Uh, but there's a whole thing about in a non-inferiority study whether you should use intention to treat or per protocol. Um, because Go on. <laughs> I'm asking to open a can of worms. <laughs> Possibly, and I think I think there's lots of different viewpoints on it, but. From if you have an intent, if you have a, um, uh, a non inferiority study, then actually, what you, if you do an intention to treat analysis, you are more likely to to not find difference between the groups. So you're you're increasing your likelihood of making it non inferior when that might not be the case. Ah, okay. And they did both. They did. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, there are some key exclusions. Uh, patients with a bleeding disorder, patients with anticoagulation. I think those are both pretty fair enough, yeah. aren't they? Um, the interesting one is INR over 1.5. Um, and I thought, oh, that might exclude quite a few patients, especially sort of liver patients. And we need to bear that in mind for applicability and generalizability. Um, but then they changed that to three. So the INR, um, they allowed patients with an INR under three after two thirds of the enrollments because they had some data come out showing that those patients don't have a particularly high risk of bleeding. Um, and that, interestingly, isn't included in the subgroup analysis. But they did say they introduced that about two-thirds of the way through the study. So I guess when you're looking at the data, you sort of think, well, a third of these have got maybe got an INR or have the potential to have an INR of, of, of less than three. Um, but, if they, yeah, they don't, they don't include that subgroup analysis, presumably because it's such a small group of people. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, yeah, if there's just a handful of patients, I suppose it doesn't. And I wonder why they did that. I mean, I appreciate the data comes available showing that it's safe, but they could have still kept the same inclusion criteria, but maybe it was to try and make it more broadly applicable, or maybe they were just struggling to recruit. I think that's the theme of this. I think the theme is that they are trying to make it as pragmatic and broadly applicable as, problem, as, as, as possible. But then you run into problems of saying it's so broadly applicable, it's hard to sort of interpret. Mm. Um, and that's the nuance, and that's the art of trials, I think, is deciding exactly how specific to be it's something you and i definitely need to learn <laughs> um but yeah trials def i mean the trial methodology and stats and stuff and randomization is fairly simple but i think defining inclusion and exclusion criteria is, is really art. hard yeah and, and often you can't you can't anticipate the implications of what you choose until you see the data it's really hard really hard um so respect to all those trialists out there who uh you know wade through all the criticism thrown at them after the fact uh, you know it's you've got to be very careful so they also included data from deceased patients um and they didn't consent them and in fact they in the intensive care group they said if the patient was sort of otherwise you know too unwell to consent they didn't consent them but then they tried to then once the patient recovered tried to retro you know gain their 
assent later to include their data. And I think only three patients said no. But what I thought was interesting was that in those that had died, they didn't then seek the approval of the next of kin. And whilst I think I support this sort of pragmatic trial design of, well, you've you've done something out of necessity um, at a point where there's genuine clinical equipoise, so what you might have made that decision anyway, whether you're in a trial or not. If you're going to the effort of consenting later the patients who survived, you should probably make that effort. Why are you making that different? that differentiation between the patients that have survived and those that have died and i don't to me there's a logical there, there isn't a logical step there there's a sort of it, it doesn't make sense to me so i guess if the patients survived they can personally consent can't they whereas if the patients died you're going to have to then go to the next of kin which isn't actually a legal entity but then you get that you seek the assent of the next of kin if you're going to do organ donation even if the patient has consented to it before the next of kin can decline that consent later is that different though is that because probably <laughs> Because my understanding of sort of autonomy is one of those fundamental pillars of sort of ethics. What that means is you have the right to decide for your own body what you do. Um, but these people haven't been asked. So they haven't been asked. So there's, they use this idea of presumed consent. So I think this is where there's a real problem in, in the ethics. And I've thought about this before with um, other trials, um, where things like adrenaline for cardiac arrest, um, where clearly someone can't consent. So that instead of just saying okay, we're going to do this trial because it's a really important question. We can't consent people. We think that's ethical to not consent them. They use this stupid, stupid idea of presumed consent. It's just, it's semantics. It's, 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 it doesn't make any sense to me. Just say what it is. Say that you're doing a trial because it's important and we're not going to consent people. But for some reason, these ethicists can't get their head around it. I think it's it's to do with optics, isn't it? And, 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 things that have gone on in the yeah. past sort of things in history where things have been done without consent yeah. but presumed consent is no consent isn't it i mean maybe we need to go away and look this up and see if there is a an actual difference i it, to me it strikes as, as it's no consent yeah. but i think but perhaps i need to know more about it that's you're, you're a lot more uh, guarded than, you, than me on your opinions <laughs> okay well, we better leave this sticky subject alone i think <laughs> Uh, so in terms of other inclusion criteria, some patients were included twice, like they had a big gap between one line insertion and another. And I think that's, I don't really have a problem with that. Um, and they also then included patients specifically from a haematology ward or those admitted to ITU. I think that's a pragmatic way of separating different causes of thrombocytopenia. So in your haematology ward patients, you've got the bone marrow failure due to either leukemia or chemotherapy or aplastic anemia. And on ITU, you've got the consumptive coagulopathies. Um, so I, th I think it's a pragmatic way of splitting that group of patients. Um, and I wonder if they've uh, gone further and looked at that. But clearly there are some, there might be some haematology patients on ITU. And then there's going to be some haematology ward patients who are septic. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's, there's an assumption there. It'd be really interesting to know what the, what the breakdown and sort of diagnosis was, but I don't think we've got that data. Um, okay. So then in terms of the intervention in the trial, so it's a, um, they took patients who had a platelet count of between 10 and 50 that uh, in the previous 24 hours and randomized them to receive a platelet transfusion or not, just a single unit platelets. And, and then a blinded operator, so a blinded uh, ITU or a radiologist or someone sticking the central line in, um, and they had to use ultrasound because that is actually the thing that's, that is associated with bleeding is doing doing one of these without ultrasound. And they had to be experienced and they had to have done at least 50 before. Yeah. Um, I guess the other thing interesting is there is I guess that if they're on ITU, an anaesthetist will do it themselves, whereas the ward patients probably are all radiologists. Like, who's better at doing central lines? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I guess I suspect the anaesthetists are better at doing it in really sick patients and yeah. the radiologists are better at doing it in the controlled situation that they're in. Who knows? Who knows? Okay. But I think we can all say if, you, if you're doing ultrasound guided central venous gutter insertions, you're probably pretty experienced and, and you had to be in this trial. So yeah. I think we're relatively comfortable with that, aren't we? I mean, I've done them, but <laughs> I haven't done 50. <laughs> How many have you done? <laughs> Four. <laughs> Okay, so you wouldn't be allowed to uh, put one in for this trial. And I, if you were doing it, I'd definitely give a bow for you. Indeed. <laughs> okay. Um, but again, that is the point, isn't it? You know, if it is out of hours and you've got an inexperienced operator, that is maybe some something you would That's a realistic do. thing that might happen. Yeah. And it's a realistic thing to, to do is to drop your plate transfusion threshold potentially, isn't it? Because um, we're always thinking about the real world. Okay. 
Right, let's talk results. Um, so over six years, they randomized 393 episodes of CVC placement in 358 patients. So 197 in the transfusion group and 196 in the non-transfusion. So the primary outcome for this study was um, non-inferiority of uh, no transfusion of platelets versus transfusion of platelets um, with regards to bleeding outcomes when bleeding is graded as grade two, three, or four. And actually what they found was that this, that effectively that no transfusion was inferior to transfusion uh, with a relative risk of 2.45. What, uh, what does that mean for the uninitiated? It effectively means that the rate of bleeding was two and a half times higher in the no transfusion group than it was in the transfusion group. So what's that in absolute numbers? Uh, so in the transfused group, uh, the bleeding rate was about 5%. And then in the non-transfused group, the bleeding rate was 12%. So I think that's much higher than they were expecting looking at their methods. I think they expected a, what was the percentage of bleeding they expected? They're expecting a 1% rate of bleeding. Yeah. And the non-inferiority cutoff was 2.5%, so two and a half times, which yeah. is which is in fairness what they found. Yeah. Um, so that's the primary outcome. And then there's a whole bunch of secondary outcomes where they're either comparing different types of you know, increased severity bleeding in the groups or um, different subgroups of patients. And I guess the headlines from this are that um, grade three or four bleeding, while whilst numerically higher in the non-transfused group, uh, wasn't statistically significantly higher. And then in terms of the patient subgroups, when you start to drill down um, the, the the particular settings where no transfusion seemed to be worse than transfusion was in non-tunneled central lines, uh, central lines into the subclavian vein, and those that were done on a haematology ward versus those that were done in the intensive care unit. Just to touch on the grade three and four bleeding, there was uh, 13 incidents of grade three to four bleeding. Uh, there were four in the transfusion group and nine in the no transfusion group. So yeah, as you said, numerically different, but the confidence interval crosses zero, so not statistically significant. Uh, but actually, sort of in terms of the ratio, it was similar to the grade two and above bleeding. Does that help? Does that make you believe it more? Then I think so. I think it adds a sort of plausibility to the fact that the, the trend of the data is the same, and it wasn't powered to detect a difference in those two. So. So it, it, it's not surprising that it didn't pick it up. Um, it's just whether you think that that's an important, that the fact that it increases, that no, no, non-transfusion increases grade two bleeding, it's whether that's an important outcome or not. I think it's interesting as well, seeing the relatively high rate of grade three, four bleeding makes you realise you probably could power a study for that. But whether you'd want to now, knowing what you know about this study is debatable, I think, isn't it? And yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to try and find out how many patients that would need to be, to be in order to power it for that. Um, what I also found interesting was that there was no increased rate of red cell transfusion in the patients that didn't get platelets. So that would be another sort of confirmatory finding that bleeding was more or significantly more in the non-transfused group. But no, they, they had the same overall similar rates of red cell transfusion. And then looking at the hemoglobin results, the hemoglobin results after the procedure on average were the same so those grade those, those rates of bleeding are actually a lot higher than i think was expected um looking at you know that one percent expected risk or even um expecting no events at all um and there's actually a reply to this article in the new england journal of medicine which makes the point that um red cells are actually really important for hemostasis as well which i really like as an idea clearly we all like the idea that giving a hemostatic cell is the thing that stops you bleeding but there's a lot more to coagulation than just platelets and coagulation factors so red cells make up the vast majority of, of a clot um, and we know that anemia corresponds certainly in things like pph the degree of anemia corresponds to risk of major bleeding um, and this reply in the new journal sort of makes the point that many years ago when um, similar trials were conducted, much lower rates of bleeding were seen, but that was before this vogue for giving really restrictive um, transfusions for various HB thresholds. So if you look back at old data, sort of median or mean or which, which <laughs> average hemoglobins are more like 9, 10, whereas here they're sort of 8. 
Um, so that may well be a reason why we're seeing such high rates. And I thought it was a really astute observation in that, in that letter. Running along the lines of sort of consistency of the rest of the data with the primary outcome, um, I was surprised to see that the platelet count, how low, you'd think that if, if platelet transfusion is going to make a difference, it's going to make a difference more in the patients with the lowest platelet count. And actually, that isn't at all what this study showed. And the patients who had um, platelet counts of between 10 and 20 were seemed to be the least likely to benefit from that platelet transfusion. So to just clarify that a little, they, they break down the in the forest plot, they break down um, outcomes for different platelet count um, ranges. So they've got 10,000, or 10, I'm going to say 10 to 19, which is our numbers, 10 to 19, then 20 to 29, 30 to 39, 40 to 49, um, or 40 to 50. Um, and you can clearly see that there's increased bleeding in the 10 to 19, um, but transfusion doesn't make a difference, whereas you see that difference in 20 to 29. So in the 20 to 29 group of 46 patients who had a CBC and transfusion, no one bled. And in 51 of patients who had the transfusion, eight bled. Um, and that's very nearly, very nearly um, statistically significant, but not quite. Um, what do you, what's your reading of that? I mean, it's probably just to do with the low numbers in each group, isn't it? But I was expecting to see a trend where the lower the platelet count is, the more likely that platelet transfusion was going to be a benefit. And that isn't what it shows. And therefore, it makes me doubt all of the data or that sort of, it makes me doubt the data. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I guess as these these groups aren't, they're not powered. And I, I think there is a lot of statistical variation in there. We'll ask Laura about it and see what she's thinking. Other things I found quite interesting uh, results in this study was the, the cost analysis that they did. So when the patients didn't get a platelet transfusion, obviously they saved the money of a platelet transfusion, but then they developed, potentially developed the costs of dealing with that bleeding. But um, despite that, the cost of the no transfusion group was less. And that's even allowing for the fact that if they didn't have a platelet transfusion, they were more likely to have a platelet transfusion in the subsequent 24 hours. I think that's just to do with the fact that the platelet count was drifting down anyway, and then it, it hit that magic threshold of 10. Yeah. So you might as well give that transfusion to those patients who are drifting down in a way. You might as well give that a little bit early. Well, that was their argument. I guess they've only looked at the platelets they're given in the, in the preceding 24 hours, though, haven't they? So it's not it's not that... I mean, they, did they, they didn't look at the overall number of platelets given in that entire hospital stay. No, I think they just looked at the, the platelet transfusion over the next 24 hours. And what they didn't do is actually tell us how long before the, the procedure was the platelet count between 10 and 20? Like, was it 23 hours before their platelet count was 11? And, and then when did they give the platelet count? It was in the preceding 24 hours, wasn't yeah. it? I think ideally you'd like to know what the platelet count was exactly yeah. just before the, the procedure, wouldn't you? But again, this comes down to pragmatism. Um, and we know that this was a relatively cost-effective trial, let's say. Um, so you are you are hampered by you know the real world and being pragmatic. Um, okay. So I thought another interesting observation was that um, although the number of patients with hematomas was lower in the platelet group, the size of those hematomas were larger. Go on, come up with plausibility for that. Come on. <laughs> I think it's just these are just statistical quirks, aren't they? They don't actually do any tests for multiplicity for multiple testing, do they? Here, no. And I thought that was something you were meant to do. So, just to explain very briefly, from the little I understand about this, um, if you do loads of different secondary analyses, by chance you're going to find one that's statistically significant because we test statistical significance of this p-value of zero point zero five, which essentially means that. If you were to do it 20 times, you'd find that result by chance. So if you did 20 tests... One of them should be positive. One of them should be positive. And that's kind of what you see in this. But there's this statistical test of testing for multiplicity to, to prevent that happening. Um, I'm not going to go into that because one, I don't understand it, and two, we don't have time. But we maybe put that to the author who we interview in a little while yeah, um, and work out, work out why that wasn't done. Yeah, okay. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Floor Van Baal onto the podcast Floor is the lead study author for this PACER trial, and she's also a junior doctor working in the Netherlands. Hi, Floor. Thank you so much for joining us on our first ever podcast. Um, it's really nice to speak to you and see you over Zoom. Um, 
just tell me about you and what you're doing at the moment. So where are you in training um, and how did you get into all this? Yeah. Um, well, I studied medicine uh, in Adelaide University, uh, graduated in 2018. And I think this is a bit different. Uh, a lot of us do research before actually getting in training to become a specialist. Um, so after graduation, I first, well, immediately got into this research. Um, and well, now that this, it is sort of finished, I'm actually in my first actual clinical job working in the intensive care department. That's, so taking you back now to before, yeah. before you then started medicine. And so I guess you're in, maybe you're in medical school or what, how, how did you become, you become involved in this particular study? Because it sort of looks like to us that somehow as a medical student, you got a first author New England Journal of Medicine paper, sort of, you know, the, the opportunity to do that fall in your lap. And I mean, I presume it wasn't as easy as that, but can you talk us through the process of how that happened? Yeah, well, I think I was I was kind of lucky um, because I was looking for a research job. Something to do with intensive care um, was, uh, well, it was what I was looking for. And then this job opening came up. I just applied and uh, and and got the job. Uh, and actually, the trial was already underway because it's it's a big big trial. Uh, and um, the second author, uh, Emma van der Weert, uh, she had already set up the trial and already recruited uh, well almost half of the patients. There's a lot of heterogeneity in guidelines. Yeah, but I'm interested right. why you picked fifty because. So the UK and US guidelines all say 20. And so I appreciate the European ones say something different, but why yeah. did you pick 50? Yeah, well, the Dutch guidelines say 50. Um, internationally, other guidelines say 40, indeed 20. Um, and that's something that's been developing over the years. Um, because the previous guidelines, uh, also in the UK, I think, and in the USA as well, uh, they also said 50. Um, so that's been a gradual decline, and that's based on those retrospective studies. But I think it's really a gray area. Did you meet clinicians who really weren't happy to randomize patients who were, they were believers yeah. in, you know, giving, giving a transfusion if the plate account was, say, 35, and they really didn't, didn't want to randomize? Yeah, but we actually um, came across them both ways. So we had clinicians who were really, um, uh, they really wanted to transfuse their patients, but there were also clinicians who really didn't want to transfuse their patients, also also with a platelet count of like 11 or 12. Um, so we really had to um, sort of convince them both ways to uh, participate. Yeah. And w were those people that were really not keen, were they more like to be hematologists or intensive care doctors or, and, and vice versa? Uh, vice versa. So uh, those um, keen on transfusing were more often hematology specialists, <laughs> and those keen on not transfusing were usually intensive care um, doctors. The next question about in terms of thinking about design of your study that I've got, you mentioned this of the, the wealth of retrospective data that there is. Um, mm -hmm. And that, from my understanding, that tends to show that the average bleeding rate is about 5% in, in sort of thrombocytopenic patients having. Um, having these inserted. But in your study, when you're doing your power calculation, you picked, well, not you, but again, the predecessors, sorry to put this down on you. And yeah. um, they picked 1% as the expecting bleeding rate with 2.5% cut off for non-inferiority. And I was just wondering about the sort of justification for those numbers, if you, if you know that. Yeah. Uh, well, the justification came, well, there is a wealth of... of um, uh, retrospective studies, but the, um, the main one that we got our, uh, expected leading rates from was the, uh, trial by, uh, Seidler, uh, which was a 2011, uh, paper, I think, um, which involves approximately 600 hematology ward patients, um, uh, with platelet counts, well, between 10 and, well, way up in the normal range. Um, and the reason we chose that, study specifically for our expected bleeding rate uh, was that we used the same bleeding definition and 
Um, what we also know is that definitions really matter um, in how many bleeding complications you uh, you find. Um, so that trial, I think, was most representative of what we could expect uh, from our trial. When you picked the fact that you were going to look at grade two and above bleeding, did you did they consider or you consider doing a trial where you just looked at grade three and four bleeding? Um, well, we did consider it, or they did consider it. Um, but based on those results of the uh, CITA trial, uh, the expectation was then that there wouldn't actually be any grade three or four bleeding. Right. We could have, in retrospect, maybe expected more grade three bleedings mm-hmm. to occur in our trial than in their trial. Uh, the expectation was to really see no or, well, maybe a very small amount of grade three or four bleeding episodes. And that meant we had to include grade two bleeding to really see what was going on. So yeah. it's, the, it's the idea there that you look for grade two bleeding with the expectation that if you reduce grade two bleeding, you will theoretically also reduce the rare occurrence of grade three and four bleeding, even if you don't see it in the trial. Or was the intention, is the intention of this trial to reduce grade two bleeding? Uh, I think it's both ways, actually. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a good assumption to say if we, and that's also what we see in our, in our data, the, the, the relative risk for grade two bleeding and grade three bleeding was actually the same. Um, um, so I think it's sort of safe to, use, to assume that if you reduce the risk of grade two bleeding, then you probably also reduce the risk of grade three bleeding, even if you don't really measure it because it's too rare. We included included the grade two bleeding. Um, so then the trial aim is also to reduce the, 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 the grade two bleeding, of course. And those those uh, bleeding episodes, even though they're they're less severe, they still require some sort of intervention uh, to stop the bleeding. So they, th- these are not s- simple self-limiting um, bleeding complications. They sometimes re- uh, require extra platelet transfusions. Um, so I think there is some clinical relevance there as well. I'm going to move on and talk and just ask you a different question now about, about mm-hmm. some of the results. Um, so the next question I have is about... Uh, the, the, you mentioned there's 7.2% missing data for the primary outcome. And both Rich and I, when we were looking through the paper, we thought, oh, that seems a bit high. Can you? What happened there where that data was missing? I can, I can sort of imagine in a busy unit, I can put myself in that situation to understand why. But are you able to explain why, why that data is missing, that 7.2%? I'm not really sure. Um... What um well, what we what we did was we measured the uh the primary outcome at three different points of time. Um so that was immediately after the um uh, the catheter was placed uh, an hour later and then twenty-four hours later. Um and if one of those time points was missing, um and the and the other well the available time points, they all said there was no bleeding, then we couldn't really be sure if there actually was no bleeding. I mean, if one of those other time points that were available, they said, well, there was bleeding of this and this grade, then we could be sort of certain that, well, there has been bleeding. Um, But in those cases where one of the time points was missing, and that could that that could be due to indeed uh, a busy ward um, where um, well a lot of things happen and they're really at 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 that point there is apparently not enough time to record that time point and then we look twenty four hours later and we see there is no bleeding we can't really be sure. Oh right. So does that mean yeah. does that mean that the um the seven point two percent might differentially affect those where no bleeding was reported? 
Um, yeah, could be. That's really interesting. Okay, thank you. Um, there was also this, the situation. This, uh, how does this situation arise in trials? Because I think the person, so that the clinician who was randomizing knew the result. The patient, if they were aware of the trial, knew the result. Either they knew whether yeah. they were having a platelet transfusion or not. But the person mm -hmm. doing the line was supposed to be blinded but in a certain number of cases they weren't and i appreciate you looked at yeah. the data and it didn't really make any difference whether they were blinded or not how did yeah. it come how did they get unblinded do they sort of walk into the room too early and see the platelets going in or <laughs> sometimes um <laughs> yeah um this trial it was it, it it was also constrained by by logistics uh i mean um we did this trial in 10 different hospitals, 15 different um, uh, departments, and the procedure for central venous catheterization was different between all those different mm. um, departments. And uh, in, some, uh, in some departments, uh, it could all be planned really well. Uh, and there was, a, there, there was a dedicated team to place the line. There was a dedicated team to... Um, do all the other care and then you can really separate it but um especially in the uh, intensive care department a lot of times also these catheters were placed during night shifts with smaller teams uh, and then it could sometimes be that the the um the person who was taking care of the patients who had to prescribe those uh, places was also the same as the person who had to um, yeah, okay. uh, place slides. So we didn't, and, and 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 we had anticipated that. Um, so we really tried to get everyone to keep that person blinded, if possible. But we also knew that we couldn't um, re require it of everyone. Because there is there there is those those situations where there's a small team, and that would have missed a lot of patients if we had required that. So I think it's good that we show that it didn't have any influence. I think yeah. this is really helpful. We're getting such a good insight into the 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 reasons for why things happen in trials, and they don't always go to plan. You know, these things are happening in the real world. Um, that's brilliant. Um, can I ask you a question about the 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 different platelet counts and, and mm -hmm. we can see on in one of the what well, the forest plot of uh, secondary um, of outcomes and um different variables that the platelet count between 10,000 and 19,000 definitely looks to increase your risk of bleeding um and if you're between 20 and 29,000 there is still that risk of bleeding but that risk of bleeding goes away completely with transfusion my question is why don't you see that in the platelet count of ten to nineteen thousand, whereas you do with twenty to twenty nine thousand. Yeah, I've wondered about this as well. And you see, well, you see a small, small decrease in in bleeding risk with the transfusion, but that's way smaller than in the twenty to twenty nine thousand. I think it's probably got something to do uh, with two things. One is the platelet increments. Um, and I think what we what we've shown in another uh, table, it's I think it's in the supplementary uh, data, is that if you look at the post post transfusion platelet counts, or well the platelet counts that we measured one hour after the um, uh, catheterization, um, then the bleeding risk continuously um, decreased with higher bleeding counts or increased with lower bleeding counts, and I think what's happening. Well, part of what's happening is that those patients with really, really low platelet counts, so between 10 and 19,000, if we give them one, one unit of platelets, their platelet count will increase, but maybe not up until the threshold that really um, provides safety. And another thing that's, that might be happening is that those patients with those really low platelet counts, they're of course, a specific subset of patients. Uh, these are the most severely ill. Um, there's probably also other... Okay. I mean, I think the other thing to say is obviously these are sub-analyses, aren't they? So that the, the, the trial is not, itself isn't powered. So I guess the 20,000 to 29,000 
effectively you see in that group could just be run, random chance. And, and, and the other thing you, you mentioned is that you didn't test for multiplicity. Um, and we've already explained what multiplicity is to, to the listeners, but why, why didn't you do that? A That's question. a good question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, because we were not, um, we were not powered for it. Uh, we, but what, what, um, well, how, how the trial was designed was there was a, a primary endpoint, primary analysis, and then um, um, the study population was well. The, the the sample size was calculated based on that primary endpoint, and then when we first uh, made the um, statistical analysis plan, and you can also see this in the supplementary data, we actually did want to um, correct for for multiplicity. Uh, but then the statistical reviewer of the New England Journal, they rightly said that our sample size was only based on the primary analysis. So really all secondary analyses um, are, well, secondary and uh, don't really have any power. So if I had to make put you on the spot to say, summarize mm -hmm. that, summarize your take-home messages of this trial in something that is easy for a clinician, a busy clinician to understand. Yeah. Well, how would you write it in a guideline, I guess? Yeah, okay, yeah. What would you say? Yeah, well, I think that's also, that's that's in, that's in, in our discussion. Um, I think what I would do is um, transfuse hematology ward patients at higher platelet counts than intensive care unit patients. How high? Based on well, how, how high somewhere between 30 and 40,000 uh, is what I would do based on our results. Um, and in the intensive care unit, um, you could decide to go lower, maybe even forego it uh, um, altogether, provided that you really do uh, good observations and um, provide a plate of transfusion afterwards if any bleeding occurs. And another big, big takeaway is that I think we should stop using tunneled um, central lines in these severely thrombocytopenic patients because the bleeding risk is just way, way higher than the non-tunneled uh, catheters. That's an, it's an interesting point because I'm guessing that a lot of those tunneled lines would have been patients having chemo, chemotherapy for things like acute mild leukemia, where we yeah. could use those, I guess, for longevity and infection prevention and stuff. So. There's definitely a debate to be had there for certain. Yeah. Um, and it looks like in your trial that the transfusion of platelets didn't really make any difference to those patients at all, although it was it was small numbers. I guess maybe that's another trial that that could be done, and it's probably quite important, isn't it? Um, yeah. Um, Floor, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. And it's so great to, to meet and chat to someone who's um, really involved in trial design at such an early stage in their career. I think often in the UK, we... we doing trials is something that you have to sort of do thousands of hours of medicine to be allowed to do so it's fantastic that you know in in the netherlands people are allowing people the opportunity to get involved very early and 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 lead things because it isn't it isn't rocket science it's just it's dedication it's organization um and clearly some statistical knowledge and excellence so really well done from us it's a it's a lovely pragmatic trial clearly there are thousands more questions we can ask but not one trial can can answer all those questions so just from both of us well well done yeah echo that completely and thank you for speaking to us about it well she was lovely I mean, I'm just amazed that she's basically done all this and she's only an F1 doctor now. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think it's really impressive that, particularly in the Netherlands, that they've got this ability to train clinical academics right from the get-go from during medical school. I agree. I think it feels like, I don't know if this is the case, but it feels like in the UK to sort of be able to do trials, you sort of have to do your time. Am I right? I and mean, you think that's, that hasn't been the case here with this? Yeah, maybe. I mean, to, to get to do trials in the UK... I mean, there are rare examples of people who aren't consultants that have been PIs on trials, but very few, right? And you'd imagine that first author on a paper goes to the, the CI of the study. Yeah, generally. exactly, exactly. Um, fab, right, let's move on and speak to someone who actually knows something about transfusion. I think that's a good idea. 
So next, we have Professor Simon Stanworth, who is a professor of transfusion medicine from the University of Oxford. Professor Stanworth, welcome very much to this first edition of the podcast, and thank you very much for agreeing to be our um, expert uh, for for this. Um, the, the very first question I wanted to ask you really was, it seems that the, the main issue about whether you, for doing this study really is stems from the fact that platelet transfusion is not without risk of harm. Um, could, would you, for our listeners, be able to outline more about the risks of platelet transfusion? So firstly, I'd just like to say this is an important topic, and I really commend the researchers for the, uh, for the study that they've um, completed and published. The area of how we use platelet transfusions before procedures you know, has been a real challenging um, topic for us in transfusion medicine and haematology. And that's one of the reasons why guidelines, and there are guidelines out there, but they, they've often come up with slightly different recommendations, um, different areas of guidance. And I think underneath that all is the fact that we haven't had good, high-quality data. One of the reasons why I have been more concerned and others about how we use platelet transfusions before procedures is because, you know, platelets do have risks. All transfusions have risks, um, and some of those are common to platelets and red cells. And we capture data on those risks through haemovigilance systems. So for those who work in, in the UK, we'll all be very familiar with SHOP, the Serious Hazards of Transfusion, which collects data from hospitals around those the, all those adverse events that happen. And what I think we've been seeing in the last few years, and if you get a chance to look at the report, please do, but you can begin to see there that platelets seem to be associated with the greatest numbers of these adverse events. Now, obviously, when I'm talking here about adverse events, I'm talking about a very broad mix of, of problems. Um, and some of these will include more typical um, reactions, trans, you know, um, allergic type reactions. But I think it's clear that platelets are amongst the, the blood component most commonly associated with reactions. But I think we've also started to get a, some insight into other risks of platelet transfusion, which we've seen in randomised trials. So most of the randomised trials to date for platelet transfusions have been done in the setting of patients with haematological malignancies, blood cancers. But we've also started seeing randomised trials done in other patient populations. Um, and that's been more apparent over the last few years. But if I look at some of those studies, then again, we perhaps get some signals here that platelets might be associated with harm. So, for example, there was a multi-centre randomised trial done in the Netherlands, France and the UK, which looked at adult patients with intracerebral haemorrhage. These patients have been taking antiplatelet agents and they had two arms in the randomised trial, one which looked at platelet transfusions and one which was more a standard of care without platelet transfusion. The authors found that the, the odds of death or dependency at three months were greater in those patients who received platelet transfusions in addition to standard of care. There's also been a large randomised trial conducted in the UK, Ireland and Netherlands, which looked at critically ill neonates. Um, for this trial, the, the platelet transfusion thresholds that were commonly used and where there was equipoise for the neonatologists were platelet transfusion policies at platelet counts of 25 or 50. But what these authors reported was that there was a higher rate of death or major bleeding at 28 days in that liberal, that high threshold arm. So these trials are beginning to tell us that there may maybe harm with the use of platelet transfusions. Now, of course, you know, there's a whole further set of questions about why that might be the case, but it highlights for me that need to understand the benefit and the risks of platelet transfusions. And that may be particularly relevant in this setting of how we use platelet transfusions before procedures. One of the reasons why I pick on that is that, as we know, if we do procedures, 
many of these patients may not experience a bleeding event anyway. So actually we're exposing these patients to a drug, a platelet transfusion, but these patients may not go on and experience a bleeding event. So I think sometimes when we're using interventions, transfusions as prophylaxis, we need to be particularly sure that we understand that risk benefit ratio very clearly. So with that in mind and with the um, the background, whether prophylaxis should be used and you're saying it's, there's equipoise about that, do you think this trial answers that equipoise and do you think this trial should change our clinical practice? What the authors found was that if they were withholding a platelet transfusion in that more restrictive arm, they did seem to find higher rates of bleeding. However, when we look a little bit more about that, and I think this has to influence how we think about this trial result for our guidance and for our for our recommendations, is that much of this seemed to be happening in the haematology patients, and much of it seemed to be driven by patients who are having subclavian central venous catheter insertion. And that may not be the most common insertion site um, in many countries. So I think, you know, put it, putting this together, um, I think we need to look on this trial as a very important way along trying to understand the role of platelet transfusions. But I'm not going to suggest that it answers all the questions. And in particular, I wonder whether it's adequately sized, whether the power of the study is sufficient to help us unpick the cohorts of patients, whether haematology, bone marrow failure, or whether critical care in ICU. I think there are so many questions here that make doing these kinds of studies really difficult. I mean, what threshold do you go for? Do you go for 10? Do you go for 20, 30, 40, 50? And in patients with particularly low counts, do you give one unit of platelets? Do you give two units of platelets? At which point do you give one? Do you aim for a certain threshold? Do you aim for a certain target platelet count? Um, do you have different platelet thresholds or, or targets in patients who have different etiologies of thrombocytopenia? Um, and then what outcomes do you use? Do you use grade two bleeding, grade three bleeding, grade four bleeding? Do you use mortality? Do you use um, thrombosis? Who knows? I know you're involved in a trial that's trying to answer some of those questions using um, sort of more modern statistical methodology. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? We, we struggled a bit because actually many studies, uh, and I don't think it's peculiar just to transfusion medicine, but in many areas of our practice, we tend to dichotomize. We tend to think of a two-arm study where we might compare you know, an intervention or this threshold, and then we compare it with another. And so we've almost kind of simplified it to asking two, two thresholds. But in practice, as you were saying, um, it might be there kind of shades here that we need to explore. So it might be kind of a one size doesn't fit all. One particular number or threshold doesn't fit all. It may not fit all types of patients. Um, and it may not be relevant to all types of procedures. So actually, with our statistical colleagues at ICNARC, we developed this idea for um, a kind of large adaptive effectiveness trial, where what we wanted to compare were five equally spaced platelet count thresholds. So rather than looking at, say, 10 or 50, let's have a sufficiently large study that allows us to explore the, the benefit or the risks of platelet transfusions if you have a threshold of 10, 20, 30, 40 or 50. So Simon, just to end, can I sort of pin you down to ask you whether you think this study immediately changes practice? I mean, are there, are there any patients you can think that previously you would have done one thing and now you do something differently? Well, what point where it's making me think a little bit more and some of my colleagues in ICU think more. What about those platelet count thresholds that are very low? You know, for example, I mentioned in our kind of five-arm study, we've got one of those thresholds where we're looking at platelet counts of 10. Now, here we've got an interesting situation where we've got the study from the Netherlands 
beginning to say, well, actually, in that group, you might be seeing more bleeding. How would I you know, think about that in the context of my practice and UK practice? Now, actually, another way of thinking about that is that we have already recruited more patients in ICU in T4P in ICU. Now, as for all randomised trials, that's, those results are looked at by a data monitoring committee, and they haven't raised any questions of harm here. So maybe we really need to let these studies run to be clearer about my practice for that very low platelet count threshold. Clinicians may choose to say, on the basis of this data, for this threshold of 10, I am going to use platelet transfusions. However, I think there's sufficient uncertainties that I think it's perfectly acceptable to also say for my practice, I'm, you know, I'm confident that I don't need to give a platelet transfusion, or perhaps what I prefer is let the protocol, let the T4P protocol, allow me to allocate my patient to a, an arm, which might still include that 10, that more restrictive platelet count threshold. That's such a lovely answer, because what you're essentially saying is that this trial allows you to double down on continuing to randomise patients to answer important questions. Um, Simon, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the first ever podcast. Um, we are delighted that you were able to share your expertise and wisdom with us and share a little bit about what's coming up in the future. I'm really excited to see the results of T4P and learn a bit more about the, the methodology that you guys are using. Um, and uh, perhaps we can have you on the show again when that study is published. Lovely. And th thank you for the invitation. And very nice to talk to you and your listeners. Whew. Well, well, how do, how do you sum that up? There's so many things we could talk about. I think we could fill another hour. But we call this we call this podcast after lots of thought. Don't just read the abstract. And I think this beautifully illustrates that, doesn't it? You know, you've got an abstract with headline result that says lower bleeding or less bleeding if you give platelets to people with a platelet count of 10 to 50. I mean, that headline result could not be clearer. Yeah. But and then you look down further and you, you actually analyse the data for yourself and actually it becomes far less clear, doesn't it? Yeah. I think there's some subtleties in there. And this is the, one of the problems with trials is that, you know, you power it for a primary outcome across a whole span of patients receiving different types of lines, different platelet counts, because you kind of have to, because that's pragmatic, otherwise you'd never do a trial. You, then at the end, you're kind of stuck with this problem of trying to interpret it based on subgroups, which isn't powered. Exactly. So, so how are we going to interpret this study then, Rich? I think the, the, first, the first thing is that it's it's one of the few studies that actually shows that platelets as a hemostatic agent stop bleeding. <laughs> and I'm very skeptical about platelets that have been sat in a bag and whether they really do anything and whether it's the platelets themselves, whether it's the microphysicals or whatever else in that bag. I mean, that's another, another another topic. But first and foremost, it shows that platelets seem to be effective. Well, yeah, you do platelet function testing on platelets in a bag and they do nothing if they've been in that bag for longer than six hours. Yeah, which is, yeah, sketchy. <laughs> or just means our testing is rubbish. Yeah. Um, so clearly they're doing something. Now, who do we give them to? Well, I don't think you give them to everyone with a platelet count of 10 to 50. Um, although those sub-analyses weren't powered, it looks numerically, and this plausibility as to why this might be the case, that people with tunnel lines, people with subclavian lines have worse bleeding. Um, patients from the hematology ward have worse bleeding, presumably because of the etiology of the... So they're not the churning out platelets. They just don't have any. Yeah, yeah. and we all, we know that immature platelets are more reactive so um if you've got bone marrow failure for example because of chemotherapy you've got no platelets whatsoever um whereas if you've got a consumptive bronchocytopenia where you're churning out lots of immature platelets you might might have different um different bleeding sort of phenotype the other thought i had is you know that trial used an experience op operator with ultrasound presumably in fairly controlled conditions although i guess they probably managed to randomized people in the middle of the night and things sounded like, this. like they did hence they wouldn't have had this issue of unblinding <laughs> which i think is wonderful but again it adds another dimension to the interpretation doesn't it so if you have got an inexperienced operator or you haven't got ultrasound available or you are doing it in the middle of the night on itu for example then those might be the times where you you give your platelets um especially in a patient whose platelet counts trending down anyway 
So how about this for a summary? You don't have to give platelets in this setting for patients between who've got platelet counts between 10 and 50 who need a central line. But in patients whose platelet count is rapidly trending down, or they're having a tunneled line, or they're having a subclavian line, or they've got bone marrow failure, or they're having it done by an inexperienced operator in a rush setting, those are the times where you consider giving platelets, yeah. but otherwise go by existing guidelines. And we wait for that study done by Simon Stanworth. Yeah, I agree. The only other thing I would say is that platelet count, you know, would you give them to someone with platelet count of 45? I'm less convinced. Well, I think, yeah, I think it was unusual that the Dutch guidelines say 50 yeah. as a cutoff. And that is, that's higher than the rest of the world. Where would you be on that? Probably be, probably be around 30. Yeah. But as we said, there's lots of nuance in there, isn't there? Mm. Brilliant. Right. So that tells you why you shouldn't just read the abstract. This has been so much fun. Really looking forward to the next episode where we discuss frail AF, which I think is a really important practice changing trial. Um, and um, we'll take it from there. So you've heard from Floor Van Baal. You've heard from Simon Stanworth and our own two meagre opinions on this matter. Now it's time for you to make up your own minds. So we'll take our leave of you and look forward to welcoming you next time. If you'd like to send us any feedback, find us on Twitter at Pip Nicholson or at Richard Booker. Similarly, if you'd like to suggest any topics, please send us a message. And remember, don't just read the abstract. Bye.